Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to be picking up with where we left off the last day, which was discussing the rules around the incorporation of express terms into a contract. So the, the phenomenon or scenario that we're dealing with here is when parties say and communicate things to one another prior to the formation of a contract, how do we know whether anything that they said or communicated to one another counts as a term of the contract. And so the last lecture, we covered Lord Denning's idea of the intelligent bystander test and some of the criteria that courts have appealed to in order to infer what might count as a term of the contract based on the so-called objective intention of the parties. And this lecture, we're going to look at written contracts specifically, and more precisely, an old common law rule, and I'm going to put that in scare quotes for the time being, as we'll see, it's not really a rule, called the parole evidence rule, or parole evidence rule. Now, let me just say at the outset that I've taught this subject, this topic rather, many times, and my experience is that students really struggle with this particular one, and they find it a little bit confusing. And in some ways, I think that's because the Law in relation to the parallel evidence rule in many ways sums up or epitomizes something that people find, students in particular find disturbing about contract law. Namely, that it's full of rules and exceptions to rules and a lot of maybe confusion and inconsistency and you're grasping around desperately for something certain, something definite to cling on to and just when you think you've kind of got your head wrapped around an idea or concept, it turns out it's not as straightforward as you'd like to think. And as I say, the parallel evidence rule seems to really epitomize this phenomenon, which is replete throughout contract law. And in fact, it's replete throughout all of law, I would say. But it's just particularly obvious when we study this one. So, you know, what is the parallel evidence rule? You know, let's start by just stating something that should be relatively obvious to you, which is that when we want to decide whether something counts as a term of contract, the most common way in which parties decide this is by writing down the terms of their contract. And I mean, you've probably signed documents like this before. You've signed contracts where the terms of the deal, the terms of the employment, the terms of the service contract, whatever it happens to be, are set down explicitly in writing, oftentimes numbered and oftentimes there's a lot of detail and complexity to those terms. And that's really the most common way of specifying and guaranteeing that something counts as a term of contract. So I didn't say that in the last lecture, but hopefully it's common sense or it's obvious enough to you that we really only deal with uncertainties or we only encounter problems when parties haven't reduced the terms of their contracts to writing. Now, the parallel evidence rule states effectively the following which is that when a contract has been reduced to writing, in other words, when its terms have been specified and set down in writing, it is presumed to be impermissible to introduce extrinsic evidence to add to, vary, or contradict its written terms. Or in other words, so-called parallel evidence is inadmissible. Now, I said earlier that this probably shouldn't really be called a rule of contract law. And the reason for that is that it's not, in essence, a rule. What's actually happened over the years is that courts have found multiple exceptions to this rule. In fact, they've found so many exceptions that it might cause you to wonder whether 
it's worth talking about something called the parallel evidence rule at all. But that's the terminology, that's the phrase that's used in all the judgments and all the textbooks. So we're going to stick with it, even though it's problematic. And what we're ultimately going to conclude, once we run through all the exceptions to the rule, is that this isn't a rule, this is just a presumption that applies, that ordinarily, unless certain exceptional circumstances apply, a written contract cannot be varied by extrinsic evidence. In other words, you can't add to or subtract or undermine the terms of written contract by appealing to extrinsic oral evidence in particular. Okay, so if we work with this idea that this is the starting presumption, let's then consider all the exceptions to it, all the scenarios in which courts are willing to entertain extrinsic evidence to vary or modify the terms of a written contract. All right, so I'm going to discuss seven exceptions to this rule. And this probably actually isn't even a full list of all the exceptions to the rule in practice, but it is the major exceptions to the rule. So I'm going to start here with the first exception, which is that extrinsic evidence, parallel evidence, can be introduced in circumstances where there is some doubt as to whether there is in fact an agreed-upon contract in the first place, and also as to whether there is in fact maybe more than one contract. So there are some old cases on this point. There's the case of Pym v. Campbell, it's an 1856 case. So here we have John Pym, who invents a machine for, and this is actually a quote from the judgment, a machine for crushing, washing, and amalgamating stuff of some kind. So he's an inventor, and he tries to sell this machine then, or rather an interest in the machine, to the defendant, Campbell. A written document was produced stating the terms of this sale agreement, this one-eighth interest in the machine. The two parties also agreed that two engineers would have to inspect the machine and approve it. The engineers inspected the machine. One of them did not approve of it. And so Campbell subsequently tried to refuse to honor the sale agreement. But Pym tried to enforce the sale agreement on the grounds that all the relevant terms and conditions were contained in the written document. And there was nothing in this written document that made reference to engineers having to approve the machine. So the court rejected Pym's argument here and found that based on the evidence presented to them, the approval from the engineers was a fundamental condition precedent to the formation of a contract. So just to refresh your memories, the idea of a condition precedent, which we mentioned before, is a condition that has to be satisfied before a contract can be said to have come into existence. And the standard example that I usually give is the provision of adequate references prior to an employment contract being commenced. That's a condition precedent. And so the idea here, again, is that the engineer's approval, even though it's not stated in written terms in the document, is a condition precedent to the contract. So you can't even say that the terms within that document begin to apply until the engineers have given their approval, and they didn't in this case. So this extrinsic evidence could be introduced to prove the existence of a fundamental condition precedent. Another case, as an Irish case on this point, is Carragie versus Brock, an 1871 decision. So here we have a deed of assignment and for those of you that don't know, a deed of assignment is a legal document that assigns property rights to someone. This deed of assignment failed to state that Brock had to pay Carragie a sum of money 
as part of the assignation or sorry assignment of the property rights. Now the promise to pay this money was contained in another document, just not the deed of assignment, and that was a memorandum of the agreement reached between the parties. Brock, understandably enough, tried to argue that since this promise was not included in the deed of assignment, following the parallel evidence rule, the evidence from this other document couldn't be introduced to modify the terms within the deed of assignment. But the court rejected this. And they did so on the grounds that the extrinsic evidence proved that there were in fact two distinct contracts in existence here. There was one contract to assign the property and another contract for payment. So that shows that, again, extrinsic evidence can be introduced to either prove a fundamental condition precedent or to prove that there are more than one contract. Sorry, there is more than one contract. So that's exception one. Second exception to the rule. Extrinsic evidence, parallel evidence, can be introduced to explain any essential background circumstances to the written agreement between the parties. Again, there are some old cases on this. I'm going to mention one Irish case from the 1850s, Harry's versus Hardy. And the facts of this in case involved a ship repairer who brings an action against two parties who he was under the belief owned a particular ship. And he thought that they were liable to pay him for repairs that he had made to this ship. Now, it turns out that they were, in fact, the registered owners of this ship under the bills of sale for it. So under a particular written document, they were the bill, the owners. But they were then able to introduce parallel evidence, extrinsic evidence, to show that they were not the true owners of the ship. They were just the mortgagees of the ship. So, look, I'm not saying this is a particularly fascinating case, but it is case that is authority for this idea that extrinsic evidence can be introduced to explain some essential background circumstances to the agreement, in this case, to prove that they were not the true legal owners of the ship in question. And so they shouldn't be liable for payment of the repairs. The third exception, and this is actually probably one of the more interesting exceptions, and this is an idea that comes up over and over again in contract law, and so worth paying attention to this bit, if you haven't been already. So the third exception is that extrinsic evidence can be introduced to address any vagueness or ambiguity in the written terms of a contract. Now, let me just preface this by saying that we often use the term vagueness and ambiguity interchangeably, those two terms interchangeably, as though they mean the same thing. I guess linguistically speaking, they don't mean exactly the same thing. It's worth distinguishing between them. When we say that a term or a phrase is ambiguous, what we actually mean usually by that is that it has two or more agreed upon meanings. So for example, if I gave the imperative instruction, please give me a ring. Well, in that phrase, ring is ambiguous. There are two or at least two agreed upon meanings of that. Uh, give me a ring could mean please give me a phone call. You know, kind of a classic term or maybe slightly antiquated or older term for give me a phone call. Or it could mean give me a piece of jewelry, a ring being an item of jewelry. So the term is ambiguous in that sentence. In relation to vagueness, that's a distinct idea. A term is vague or a word is vague when it has an uncertain boundary of application. In other words, there are 
agreed upon instances of the phenomenon in question or the word, agreed upon applications of the word. And then there are uncertain applications of the word where there is some reasonable dispute as to whether the term applies. So an example of this in practice, this is actually a kind of classic problem in law. If you use the statement that that was an unreasonable search and seizure of property, well, I would say what counts as an unreasonable search and seizure is vague. In other words, there are some kinds of searches and seizures of property which are reasonable and other kinds that are unreasonable and where the boundary lies between them is unclear. Now, ambiguity and vagueness are pervasive phenomena in law. We would just, they crop up over and over again. You know, terms within statutes are often vague and ambiguous. Terms within constitutional provisions are vague and ambiguous. And of course, terms within contracts are vague and ambiguous. And there's a real challenge for courts when it comes to resolving vagueness and ambiguity. So the point here is that even if you do have a written contract where the terms are very clearly specified and set down within the contract, courts may have to turn to extrinsic evidence, evidence external to the written contract, to resolve the ambiguity or vagueness. So there are many cases illustrating this point. I'll just run through several of them. There's an Irish case called Ulster Bank v. Sinnott. So in this case, the defendant, Sinnott, owes money to the bank. And in order to kind of satisfy this debt, he deposited debentures with the bank. So money owing to him, in essence. The legal right to the money owing to him. And he stated at the time that these debentures were being deposited against acceptances made by the bank in the past. So an acceptance here being a bank's promise to pay some debt owed by him. And this was included in a written deal concluded between the bank and Senate. Now, the problem here was that the phrase against acceptances made was held to be vague because it wasn't clear whether it covered acceptances made by the bank in the past or whether it also included future acceptances. And so the court said that parallel evidence, extrinsic evidence, could be introduced to clarify how extensive the meaning of that phrase was. Another case, uh, Chambers v. Kelly, another Irish case. Here we have a contract that's concluded for the sale of, and here I'm going to quote from the written contract, all the oaks now growing on your lands called Greenmount near Enniscorthy, together with all other trees growing through the oak plantations mixed with said oak. Now here the guilty or problematic phrase was oak plantations. What counts as an oak plantation? Does it include all oak trees planted on the property? Or does it include a specific sub-region of the property where oak trees happen to be particularly abundant? So the court said parallel evidence could be introduced to show which meaning applied. And in particular, it was proven by the plaintiff that there was a certain sub-region of land that was designated and known as the oak plantation. And so the felling of trees in other areas of his land was a breach of contract. So fast-forwarding in time then to the late 1990s, and to an English case, Investors' Compensation Scheme Limited versus West Bromwich Building Society. In this case, a question arose as to whether the investors in mortgages had assigned all of their rights to damages and compensation to a compensation fund. 
So, I mean, you don't need to get into the details of this too much, but in essence, what happened is that there was an investment scheme that went bust, went wrong, and there was a compensation scheme set up to pay the investors back some money. And the question basically was whether the money is paid by this compensation scheme settled all of the debts associated with the original investment or whether the people who had invested and lost money were entitled to other damages on top of that. So there was a problem here in this contract involving the assignment of rights to the investor's compensation scheme because there was a clause within the written version of the contract that stated that there was only a partial assignment of rights to damages. But then there was an explanatory note associated with the agreement, which was supposed to explain what was going on to ordinary people so they could, they could understand it. And this explanatory note indicated that the assignment of rights to the investor's compensation scheme was total and not partial. So there's a conflict between these two written documents. And if you apply the parallel evidence rule strictly, then the wording in the written agreement should apply only, and this explanatory memorandum would be irrelevant. But the House of Lords in this case held that the explanatory note could be admitted as extrinsic evidence to aid in the interpretation of the written agreement. In doing so, one of the judges, Lord Hoffman, noted that all documents like this should be interpreted in accordance with common sense principles. And this meant that elements of the background facts to the agreement, why this investment compensation scheme was set up in the first place, who it was designed to help, and so forth, should be included to aid interpretation. Now, this is an idea that I'm actually going to come back to a little bit later on in the semester when we look at rules around the objective interpretation of the terms within a written contract. And this is an important decision in the history of judicial thinking about the interpretation of terms. But for now, I'm just showing it as an illustration of this exception to the parallel evidence rule. And I should say that uh, this decision the Investors' Compensation Scheme decision has been cited approvingly in uh, some Irish cases as well. Now, let me just say one thing before I leave this exception to the side, which is that in order to resolve vagueness and ambiguity in contractual terms, courts don't just turn to parallel evidence, to extrinsic evidence. They also have some kind of standard rules of interpretation or canons of interpretation, if you like, that apply to contracts of this sort. And I'm just going to mention one of them, which you might come across a lot, and it's actually a practically a very important and significant rule of interpretation. There is something called the contra proferentum rule in contract law. This is an old interpretive rule stating that in the case of an ambiguous provision within a contract, a provision that has two or more possible meanings, the interpretation of the ambiguous term should go against the interests of the person who controlled the wording. And this is actually a rule of interpretation that's commonly used against insurance companies. Because look, let's face it, many times we sign written contracts without ever reading them and without ever negotiating over the terms within them. They are effectively handed to us on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. Sign the contract, get the insurance policy, get the service that you're looking for, or go somewhere else. So ordinary people like you or I don't control the wording of the contracts that we routinely sign. And so we have this old rule, the contra proferentum rule, which states that if there's some ambiguity in that contract, the interpretation of that ambiguity should go against the interests of the party that controlled the wording, in this case, typically the insurance company or the 
service provider. There's a case I usually like to cite to illustrate this idea. It's not an Irish case. It's an American case, but it's just kind of an interesting set of facts. And it, I think it very clearly illustrates the importance of this contraproferentum rule. So the case is uh, Viviano versus Jewelers Mutual Insurance Company Limited. It's a 1982 New York State decision. So the facts of the case are that you have a couple who go out for a meal in a restaurant. The wife, I think, or maybe the fiancé, I can't actually remember whether they're married or not, uh, went to the bathroom or restroom during the meal, and she was washing her hands in the sink, and she took off her engagement ring, and she left it to the side of the sink. She washed her hands, left the restroom, and forgot about the ring, so she lost it. So she then claimed for the value of the ring under an insurance contract that she had. And the insurance contract in question stipulated that there's going to be no coverage under this policy if the article insured, the ring in this case, is lost, stolen, or damaged in any way when it is not in the care, custody, and control of the insured. So the practical question that arose in this case was whether when the woman took off her ring and set it down beside the sink when she was washing her hands, was she caring for the ring at the time, or was it no longer in her care? And the argument in the case hinged on two possible meanings of the phrase or verb to care for something. The first possible meaning was that to care for something means to take caution, to be watchful, to pay close attention to it. And you could argue that under that meaning, she wasn't paying close attention to the ring at the time, so she wasn't caring for it. Alternatively, you could say that to care for something is to have a liking regard for it or a desire to look after it. And you could argue that she was taking care of the ring in that sense because she was trying to prevent it from being damaged as she washed her hands. So because this was an insurance contract and because the woman in question had no control over the wording of the contract, the contraproferentum rule applied and so the interpretation of the ambiguity here went against the entrance of sorry, the interests of the insurance company. So this is an important idea, this kind of interpretive rule to resolve ambiguity and vagueness and has a lot of you know, practical importance and it might be something that's worth remembering yourselves in your own lives. Okay, so that's the third exception to the parallel evidence rule. And don't worry, we're going to deal with the last few a little bit more quickly. So let me talk then about exception number four. Exception 4 states that uh, extrinsic evidence can be introduced to rectify any mistake within a written contract. So let me mention one Irish case that illustrates this point, a case called Macklin and MacDonald versus Grecan or Grecan and Co. Limited, or maybe it's even Greason and Co., I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's G-R-E-A-C-E-N. So here the defendants agreed to sell a pub license to the plaintiffs once the sale of the premises was completed, so the license is uh, attached to a premises but can be traded independently of it. Now, a problem arose in this case because the pub that they were proposing to purchase turned out to have been demolished prior to this agreement being signed. Nevertheless, the plaintiffs sought specific performance of the contract on the grounds that the agreement to sell the license was distinct from the agreement to sell the pub. But the court held that extrinsic evidence could be introduced here 
to establish whether that was in fact the case. And they held that it wasn't the case, that the license in this instance couldn't be separated from the physical premises of the pub. And so evidence to show that the pub had been demolished. So there was a mistake in the original contract that the item that they were trying to trade didn't exist anymore could be established. So that's an important exception. And I should mention here at this point in time that you will actually be covering cases on mistake of contract in semester two. So this idea will make more sense then. But um, there are many kinds of mistake of contract, but a classic mistake of contract is where the item that you're trying to trade no longer exists or is damaged and this was unknown to you at the time. So moving on then to exception number five. Exception number five is that extrinsic evidence can be introduced where the written document does not state the consideration to be provided for the sale or for the item or service or whatever in question, or for some reason it does not state the full consideration for the item specifically in cases that involve statute of frauds types of scenario. So again, let me just mention one Irish case on this, is the case of Black versus Greeley, a 1977 decision. So here we have Black entering into an agreement with Greeley for the sale of land, and they agreed on the following sale price, 46,000 pounds, with 6,000 pounds being paid up front as a deposit. Now, as you all know, under the Statute of Frauds Act, which was the relevant act at the time back in 1977, the relevant act now is the 2009 uh, Property and Conveyancing Act. But under the terms of the Statute of Frauds, all contracts for the sale of land must be evidenced in writing. So the parties here, Black and Greeley, produced a written memorandum of their deal, but the problem was that this written memorandum stated that the purchase price was £40,000. This memorandum was subsequently signed by the plaintiff, Black, and Greeley then later tried to back out of the deal, and his lawyer argued that he was entitled to do so on the grounds that the memorandum did not reflect the true agreed-upon purchase price of the land, and so was not compliant with the requirements of the statute of frauds. And in the High Court in Ireland, Costello J allowed evidence of the oral agreement, not the written memorandum, to be admitted to establish what the true purchase price was, but was allowed in to vary the term within the written memorandum. Nevertheless, Costello J actually found against Greeley in this case because he held that the intention behind the statute of frauds was that the statute could not itself be used as an instrument of fraud. And so he thought Greeley was acting in bad faith here by trying to back out of a deal that he had agreed to. And so he had to live up to his side of the deal. So, I mean, the judgment here is, is interesting for our purposes because it shows that the courts will introduce external evidence to prove the actual consideration within a contract. But also it illustrates this kind of propulsive approach to the interpretation of statutes. That brings us then to exception number six. And exception six states that extrinsic evidence, parallel evidence, may be introduced to establish that a particular custom exists in a certain trade that might have a bearing on how a term applies or what the terms of a deal might be between two parties. Now this turns out to be a very practically significant idea, and actually we're going to come back to this notion of customs within certain trades being relevant to determining what the terms of contracts are. But for now, I'll just mention one case on this idea, a case called Wilson Strain Limited versus Pinkerton. It's an Irish case from 1897. So here you have a guy who sells bread. He goes around door to door to different vendors and companies, 
selling bread, called a, so-called a bread roundsman. It was a kind of trade at the time. And he would sell it on credit terms to different vendors. So even though it wasn't stated in the written terms of his contract of employment, he was allowed to introduce extrinsic evidence to prove that it was a custom within the bakery trade in Belfast for the employer, for the baker, to take over the roundsman's debts if the roundsman left employment. In other words, and this is why it's important, it was not the custom within the Belfast baking trade for the roundsman of a baker to be personally liable for any debts that he may have incurred in the course of business. Now, just to be clear on this idea of evidence about customs modifying a written contract, this is only true where the written contract does not expressly deny the custom. Sometimes written contracts will say the custom in the building trade, for example, does not apply. And in that case, you can't introduce this extrinsic evidence. But that really makes sense because in that kind of case, you don't need to introduce the extrinsic evidence because the written contract itself is sufficiently clear that this custom doesn't apply. And then that brings us at last to exception number seven. This is the last one I'll be looking at, which is that extrinsic evidence can be introduced to show that a written document is not the full agreement concluded between the parties and that the contract between the parties is actually formed from several documents or is a partly oral and partly written contract. And now this particular exception, which has proved to be practically important in, in, in the history of cases on this, kind of makes a bit of a mockery of the whole parallel evidence rule because it allows you to effectively completely ignore, well, maybe not completely ignore, but largely ignore the, the rule if you have sufficient evidence to show that the written contract is not the full deal. So it really kind of cuts the legs out from underneath the parallel evidence rule, but this is the position that we've arrived at. So one case that's usually cited to establish this idea is a case called Evans & Son versus Andrea Mazzario Limited. So here you have Evans & Son who contracted with the defendants, Andrea Mazzario, for the carriage of goods by ship to England. This is an English case. And the defendants' standard terms of deal of, of transmission of goods stated that they could transport the goods in question above deck on the ship or below deck and this was stated in a written contract that was signed by Evans and Son, the plaintiffs but apparently the plaintiffs also agreed orally with the defendants that the goods in question had to be transported below deck. Now during transport to England the goods in question were damaged in a storm and they were above deck at the time so the plaintiffs sued for breach of contract and the defendants tried to argue, no, you can't because parallel evidence says you can. we must exclude any evidence pertaining to this oral agreement. Ultimately here, the court found for the plaintiffs and said if you looked at the totality of the evidence, it was clear that this contract was partly oral and partly written and this more truly reflected the intention of the parties to the contract. Okay, so let me just briefly summarize here. Parallel evidence, this old common law rule, which isn't really a rule, which states that if a contract is written, you can't introduce extrinsic evidence to modify it. Well, we've seen now that there's seven exceptions to it. You can introduce extra extrinsic evidence to prove whether a contract existed in the first place, whether there was a fundamental condition precedent to the contract, or whether there was more than one contract. You can introduce it to explain any essential background circumstances to understanding the written contract. 
You can introduce it to resolve or address any vagueness or ambiguity in the written terms of a contract. You can introduce it to rectify a mistake within the written contract. You can use it to, or so you can introduce it to establish the consideration in a contract where it is not stated, or to establish the true consideration. You can also use it to establish some custom that may give rise to a term within a contract that is unique to a particular trade. And following this Evans and Son versus Andrea Mazzario case, you can introduce it to show that a written document does not actually constitute the full agreement reached between the party, that the agreement is more properly construed as being partly written and partly oral or made up of several documents or something like this. So where does that leave the parallel evidence rule? Well, just to repeat the point I made at the outset, it isn't really a rule, even though it's always referred to as a rule. What it is and what it seems to be is a presumption. In other words, when we have a written document in front of us, we presume that the written document contains all of the terms of the agreement, unless good quality evidence can be introduced to prove the contrary. And remember, presumptions are important in law because they often have an impact on burden of proof. So as I say, that look, that's a, a tricky topic and it's one that often epitomizes many of the complexities of contract law. Fortunately, in the next lecture, we're going to be looking at a more interesting, at least in my opinion, more interesting area of incorporation of terms into contracts. And this has to do with the incorporation of exclusion clauses into contracts. And this is something that, again, I think students find more practically interesting because knowing these rules can often help you yourself when it comes to understanding the terms by which you might be bound in a particular contract or deal. Okay, so that's it for this lecture.